helping the client discover something about themselves. One of the things that you have to be able to do is help them see clearly their situation. A lot of times they're so busy, head down, doing the work. It's very hard for them to look up and try to understand their world. So we call that sense making. So somebody has to come in and say, the reason things are going this way is because, and they can provide you a certain certainty that allows you to say, I understand what's going on in my world and why I'm having these problems now. So that's a big part of starting out. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. You've likely heard me talk about having an abundance mindset versus a scarcity mindset. And at a high level, I tend to operate with an abundance mindset. In the grand scheme, there's plenty to go around. But here's a scary truth as it relates to your customers. Your customers don't have an abundance of opportunity for you. Your customers have finite time, finite resources, and finite attention. None of them are able to nor do they want to, accept all competing offers and solutions thrown their way. That's why, like it or not, sales is often a zero-sum game. Your win is someone else's loss. Most growth, most achievements, most wins require you to take market share from your competitors while they're trying to do the same to you. I mean, How else can you grow your business by double digits if you're in an industry that's only growing at a lower rate? The point is, if you don't win over and persuade your customer, someone else will. And no matter what your role is, if you're trying to persuade others for anything, that means you're in sales. But how can you persuade others in a crowded world? When your customers are bombarded with competing experiences, competing requests, and competing relationships every day, how can you create and continue to offer value to others so they view you as a long-term partner? Thankfully, Anthony Inarino is here to share how to do that this week. Anthony is an international keynote speaker and the founder and CEO of B2B Sales Coach and Consultancy. It's a boutique sales coaching and consulting firm where they provide individual and corporate training to sales teams. And Anthony's the author of The Lost Art of Closing, the only sales guide you'll ever need, and Eat Their Lunch. Anthony and I discuss his lessons on winning, developing, and managing client relationships. And while Anthony approaches his lessons from a sales perspective, They're valuable for anyone that needs to build relationships in their career. And that includes you and me. So here it is. Here's my interview with Anthony Inarino. Hey, Anthony, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Okay, so when I hear the name Anthony Inarino, 
there's a bad reputation that seems to follow your name, but really I'm talking about the name of your hair metal band from the eighties and nineties. So I'm curious to know what lessons did you learn in your band and in your time in the music industry that carried over into your sales roles and carried over into what you teach today? Yeah, there's a, a number of them. So the first one is sort of an unfortunate kind of learning. When you're 15, 16, 17, and you're around the rock and roll crowd, uh, there's a certain lifestyle that goes along with it that's made up of, um, Matt, what you might call poor decision-making. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one way to think of it. And so that you're around people who would not be good role models. And if you had a, a child, you would say, these are the people that I would prefer them to stay away from, not the people that they spend time with. But I'm a street kid. So I grew up in a broken family and in a poor neighborhood. And so those are some of the choices that you have available to you when you're in that situation. Uh, what I learned a, a lot, though, was that I'm a good leader and I'm a, a disciplinarian to myself and to other people. And what I did, I think that helped us create the success that we had when we had success was just being incredibly disciplined about everything that we did. So the rehearsals that other bands might have might be an hour where they would rehearse, but we would rehearse for four hours a night, seven days a week. And if there was a band in town and people were going to go see it, or they were going to go to the club or something like that, you weren't going before 10 o'clock. Like we're allowed to rehearse in this room that we had from six until 10. And at 10, we had to shut down. So we would literally take all of that time and rehearse. Now it wasn't a chore when you're 17 year old, guys and there's 17 year old girls around and occasionally uh beverages so you you know you're you're not really suffering through it but we did rehearse like we were actually supposed to be getting good at what we did and uh, that ended up being true and a number of years later uh some part of that band moved out to LA to play with me and we had this lockout studio which means you can just put your equipment in you lock the door at night, you unlock the door. The next day, all you do is turn the, the switches on and everything is already there set up. You don't have to do any work except just play. And we were at the end of this warehouse and we were known for being really good at covers. And, and that was because in Columbus, Ohio, we started doing a lot of work around Ohio and we learned 500 songs in the course of a summer. Not, wow. not all from scratch. Like a, a lot of us knew parts of some albums and other people would have to learn them. But we could play four sets on Friday, four sets on Saturday, never repeat a song, always able to take any number of requests from My Sharona by The Knack uh, <laughs> to For Whom the Bell Tolls by Metallica. Like that could be in the same set. And it was just because we decided we would learn any song that any person in the band knew. And when we were in L.A., at the back of that warehouse is where everybody hung out. And on Friday and Saturday night, while we would rehearse, people would just open the door and start making requests of us. And so we would end up playing Montrose or Led Zeppelin or Motley Crue's first album, like from beginning to end. And that was just something that we all really enjoyed. And then later on, we were so disciplined about learning songs when a band called Bullet Boys came out. Uh, their albums come out on Tuesday and by Saturday we could play the song that was on the radio. And so we were really fast at stuff like that. Oh my goodness. Wow. You're right. That speaks to having that focus on discipline and learning to trust the process 
that helps you become successful. You can maybe get by on just having the look of being rockers just for so long until you actually start having to play. And if you don't have that focus on discipline, you're not going to be as successful. No doubt about it. So from that time period to today, 2021, I look at how sales have changed based on different sales strategies, sales techniques, sales tactics, all the technology that can be used for sales today. And I've heard you talk about this before, and especially referencing rainmakers versus rain barrels. So I'm curious how you've seen the sales process and sales people changing over the past few decades. I'm not happy about any, really about any part of this, Matt. I'm probably standing on the outside of a, a lot of what other people believe. And uh, I'm 100% confident that I'm right and that we're making tremendous mistakes that we shouldn't be making. And I know I go against the grain on a lot of things like this, but it's just because deeply, if you want to look for wisdom, you don't look to technology or to the future. You look backwards and you look at what are the the things that human beings have always done. So it's really easy for me to predict the future because to predict the future, I just have to look back and say like what happened in other times and how did humans behave? Somebody sent me a note today because I had a YouTube video called uh, This Is Not The New Normal. And they said, uh, that video is not holding up very well. And I said, time's on my side, friend. <laughs> Time is on my side. Human beings like to be in rooms with other human beings. And that's true. And it's always been true. And it's always going to be true. So I know that, that right now, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, it feels a certain way and that's going to go on forever, but it won't. I'm opposed to any strategy that says, you can get rich quick. Uh, you can lose weight by eating pizza and ice cream, and that you can have one minute abs. Like any approach that starts with the premise that it's going to be easy and you don't have to work very hard immediately should be suspect. So if you're within the sound of our voices and you hear that, you now know you have a warning. Like when somebody says, all you have to do is set up a fully automated prospecting sequence and all your dreams are going to come true. Uh, then I'm like, oh, good. So it doesn't matter how the client feels about being spammed. It doesn't matter that you're in a cluttered environment where people mostly just delete those things coming in because they're already over busy and are time starved. I don't like a lot of those things that are actually happening. I don't like the spray and pray approach. Recently, I started writing more about this, but I think that what we're doing is exactly what salespeople, let's go 100 years ago, information disparity. Like, I know something you don't know, and I'm not going to tell you because it gives me power over you. Like, you don't know enough to make a good decision, so I can take advantage of you. Well, that's how salespeople got a bad reputation. Right. And that's what happened is you took advantage of people. But instead of taking advantage of them now, which is something that we don't do anymore, I mean, most people don't. There's a few. I've seen a few people do it, but not many. Instead, we go on LinkedIn and we connect with them and we pitch them in four seconds after they accept the thing because we've automated it. Oh we God. spam people because we automated it. We've taught young salespeople that they should live behind a screen and email their prospective clients instead of picking up the phone and calling them and to talk about themselves, their company their solution. 
all of the things that don't really matter to clients in an early conversation. So I think we're we're not doing a very good job. And I think that if we don't start having a better conversation about what professional selling should look like, and I think it should look like high insight, high value, high rust, high caring. I think it should be a role where we're leading the client and helping them make good decisions so that they can improve their results. And a lot of people do this. But generally right now, I think what we've done over the last, I'm going to call it 12 years, that's the entire time I've been writing a blog every day, is that we've decided that technology is the answer to all of our sales challenges. Everything looks like a technology is the answer to that when it's not. It's human effectiveness. And it's things like discipline and resourcefulness and initiative and accountability and communication and uh, emotional intelligence and all of those kinds of things that we don't spend very much time talking about. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I feel the same way and I'm still somewhat new into my venture. I came from a 17-year marketing and brand background, decided to start my own venture. And of course, in my own venture, I wear all the hats, including the sales hat. I want to say this was maybe a handful of months ago. And I think I even may have like sent you a note about it during some of my research afterwards. I had a company that had reached out to me through being connected at a conference and they met with me and they were talking to me about their process and what they were doing to help people like me in my position. They positioned it as AI. I don't think it was truly AI, but what it boiled down to was creating fake profiles on LinkedIn to act as my admin or my media relations person. And then this fake person would be pitching out to other people to connect me with them in like in an automated fashion. Like these were the automated messages they would receive. And then based on if the person replied or responded or didn't here, here were the next steps. And I got out of that meeting and I was so depressed for the rest of that day. I just couldn't do any more work. The next day, I started, you know, reaching out to a number of people and posting into a number of different groups saying, hey, does anybody out here use this type of service, this type of sequencing in anything like this? And I was so grateful to find that 90% of the people that I talked to said, no, I would never use that. I don't do that. There were a couple of people that did, and I felt bad for them. But I was glad to hear that most people didn't do that. Yeah, it's not a good practice. And I do think it harms the profession. So when you have a whole bunch of marketing people deciding that they're going to help sales by automating email, and then it's, of course, the the last email has the one that you already deleted, uh, embedded in, and then the one before that and the one before that. Uh, the one that I just recently got was a guy who was really unhappy because it was his fifth email and he had all the other four emails below it. And I hadn't responded to any of them because I know that if I respond, then he gets a signal to do something about it. So we have that going on. So now everyone's email is suspect, right? Every every salesperson's email is now suspect because it's not even sent by a human being. It's being sent by robots. And the only reason that they do that is so they think that they can protect the salesperson's time to do what? Like to do what? Like nothing's happening with these things. And then the spray and pray automation on LinkedIn is the same thing. LinkedIn is the only professional social platform we have 
it should be treated as like sacred ground. Yeah. But for some reason, they allow people to automate these uh, in-mails and, and the connect and pitch thing. And that means that now my connection request is suspect. Your request is now suspect because I don't know if you're just going to pitch me or not. And instead of being able to connect with people there, because we're letting the spammers run LinkedIn, it's going to be harder for us, for all of us. And it's sort of the same thing. Like, how did we get the negative stereotype around sales? Salespeople behave badly. How are we going to get the new negative stereotype as time wasters and spammers and connect and pitch people by letting this happen? That's my opinion. Yeah. So all these things happening, how are the best salespeople standing out? Well, I would tell you in my experience, the ones that can pick up the phone and actually call and have a a conversation do better. Now, there's a lot of people that will gripe and say the yield on cold calling is rather low. Well, it's not any lower than the yield on spamming people. I mean, so, but the thing that I think gives them the tremendous advantage is their synchronous communication, and then there's asynchronous communication. So asynchronous is I send you a message, you get it later, and then you can respond to me later. And you and I are never like we are right now where we can have a conversation with each other because it's not synchronous. We're not in the same place at the same time. Right. Being in the same place at the same time is incredibly powerful for human beings. It always has been. And if you want an advantage, presence is an advantage. And if you look at Gartner's research, they'll tell you that a buying committee spends maybe 18% of their time with salespeople and each of them get about 6%. Well, not if they don't show up. Like if they don't show up, then they're giving up their 6% and I'm happy to take it. I will take 12 and leave you with six, Matt, um, just because it's like a football game to me. I'm going to be on offense the whole time. I've got the ball. I'm not going to let you have the ball. Why would I let you have the ball? I'm trying to win. That's my competitive nature. There you go. We're competing with everybody else who's trying to get that client, get that prospect to be able to create a relationship with them. We're also competing with all the different noise. And you talk about being able to displace our competitors. What's the right way that that you can go about displacing a competitor? Well, the one thing that you can't do is talk bad about them. So that's the first thing. There's never a reason to say anything bad about your competitors. I actually like going exactly the other direction. So for me, I, I like to say, I have friends there. They do really good work. We have wildly difficult arguments over the model. And they love their model. We love our model. And we believe our model is superior, but they work really hard and they do good work, a number of circumstances. So I'm never going to say anything bad about them. What I am going to do is create more value. So if you have the ability to teach and educate and help and facilitate a buying process, you're going to create greater value than another salesperson who comes in and says, let me tell you about my company. Let me tell you about our solutions. Let me tell you about how we think we could help you work to find the problem and the pain so I can just drop the solution in. It's way easy to beat people that do that. And what I will tell you, the starting point is though, and this is something that if you're a salesperson, you have to pay attention to. 
you're going to get displaced when you're complacent, when you're entitled, when you're negligent, when you don't take care of people, when you believe that the contract is what keeps you in the door and not your performance. Whenever those things are true or things that are like that are true, it's pretty easy to come in and talk to a a client that's being neglected and find a way to create value for them. So once you have that relationship, you can't just rely on what it took to get you in the door. You've got to keep focusing on providing that value every day moving forward. Well, yeah. And so here's what Silicon Valley would tell you. Like, um, you should automate a thank you card or something like that. I'm about to have my 26th anniversary And I think if I were to send my wife flowers and just have the florist put a 12 roses in a vase and send it every year, I wouldn't give very much credit for that. And so the the advice that we're taking about sales and communication is coming from uh, engineers who sneak out of their house at night to uh, spend time with their robot girlfriends or something like that. Yeah. It all goes back to focusing on that human approach and recognizing that we're dealing with other human beings. So we need to act like a human being. There's no doubt about it. Did you know that in addition to my podcast and my articles, I speak to audiences all over to help them simplify their customer experience and simplify their employee experience. I've spent the last few years leading a crusade of simplicity across the globe. If you want a winning brand, you have to provide a simple experience to your customers and to your team members. Whether it's a live event or a virtual event, I'd love to partner with you and teach your audience how to do just that. With over a decade in marketing, I know how to hook and captivate an audience. And as a speaker, I know how to connect with that audience. Along with my lessons, I use stories and humor to keep everyone engaged and inspired. Then they leave with the knowledge and next steps to transform their business. As an event planner, you're managing lots of details to give your audience the most memorable event. The last thing you need is a speaker who will make your event memorable for all the wrong reasons. Not only will I leave your audience energized and inspired, I'll make it easy for your team to work with me. Hey, If I've built my brand around simplicity, then you know I'm going to make it simple for you. When you visit mattliles.com slash speaking, you'll find everything you need to know, including details on my topics, promotional materials, and most importantly, a link to connect with my team so we can book your event. So visit mattliles.com slash speaking. I can't wait to help your audience brand out from the crowd. So you talk about adding value and a lot of people say, yeah, I focus on creating value to my client, but everybody's definition of creating value or adding value can be vastly different, but you've got a framework that actually walks through the levels of value that best salespeople, the ones that stand out are providing. Can you walk through that framework? Yeah, very, very simple framework. And one that I discovered when I was trying to help people be less transactional and more strategic. What I noticed is that there's basically four different levels of value that you can create for a client. So the first one is the value of your product. 
that was the way that we sold for a very, very long time. You would lead with the product and you'd tell them about features and benefits and all of those things. And why did we do that? Because there was no internet. Like, how would you learn about a product when there's right. no internet? Like, you can't find any information. You need a salesperson to do that. And then we would buy things and sometimes you need help. And so the experience starts to become important. So that's level two, where we're going to have good support, good service, good experience working with us, easy to do business with, that kind of thing. Right now, customer experience is huge. And because of the world that you're in, you know that. like That's a big, big deal right now. Yeah. Um, and people have greater expectations. So you got to get to level two. Level three is what we would call solution selling. So that means I need you to do this work. And I need this particular thing to happen. And I have this problem and this would solve my problem for me. We just call that tangible results. So the way that I would describe this to you is somebody's going to do a, a direct mail campaign. And what you could think about level three is I'm going to print it for you. I'm going to fold it for you. I'm going to drop it in an envelope. I'm going to send it to the addresses you gave us. Okay, so that's level three. If you did that successfully then you you accomplished what you were supposed to accomplish. But the reason that somebody would have a direct mail campaign isn't because they wanted to send somebody mail. And so you have to get to level four. And level four says, why are they sending the mail? Because they want to acquire new clients or they want to upsell their existing clients or they want to communicate some message to that client that's going to be important to them. Like there's a dozen reasons that you might do something like that, but that's the strategic outcome. I'm sending the mail because I want somebody to go to a computer and take action by filling out a credit card form if I'm Citigroup or Bank of America or somebody like that. And the part that we've gotten wrong for a long time now is that we sold in the same way for so long. We start with level one. We start with, let me tell you about my company and our solutions and what we do. And then let me tell you why us. That's not the right order for the conversation. The right order for the conversation, especially in a competition, and especially when you're displacing somebody, is why change. And so if you start with level four and say, I know you're pursuing these strategic outcomes, and I can, I'll do this in marketing talk, Matt, and we'll see if I can score with you or not here. We'll see. Excellent. If I could lower the cost of acquiring a customer and give them a better experience too, would that be valuable to you? And if you're a CMO, like all you do is dream at night about lower cost of acquiring a customer, right? Like that's the thing that if that happens, everything's good in your world. If it doesn't and the cost of acquiring a customer goes up, you're not very happy, right? Right. Those are the good things you dream about. (laughs) Yeah, right. Not the nightmares. Yeah, nightmares are increasing costs and Google core vital changes and things of that nature. That kind of takes me back to like that age old allegory of around don't sell people the drill, sell them the hole. And to me, I think when I hear that, I think, okay, yeah, that's all well and good. No one really wants a drill, but does anyone really want a hole? No. I mean, like to me, like that desire of wanting a hole in your wall is maybe like at that level three. Whereas level four, we recently moved into a new house. You know, I say recently, it's been nine months, but we still have almost nothing hung on the walls. We've got all these framed art pieces and they're just, they're not on the walls. And someone would tell me probably, oh, you know what? Here's a drill for you to drill a hole in the wall to be able to hang all your items. Instead, 
my wife and I have gone on, looked at like different designing options, different gallery walls and things and realized, hey, there's so much more options to decorate your walls. There's so many more options to show your framed art pieces than just simply drilling a hole putting a hook in the hole and hanging it in there. You've got shelves. You can actually have things leaning on shelves. If you have art pieces that are large enough and it's not like a high traffic place, it looks really cool to actually just have it standing on the floor. So that level four approach, I think, is what really helps people stand out. There's no doubt about it. And it's because you're trying to solve a different level of problem. I mean, and if the problem can be solved by a solution then I would tell you it's probably not a complex sale because what, what I recognize some time ago is that the problems that keep your clients from solving their problems are not the problem that you're trying to solve with them. It's all the problems that they have trying to solve the problem by having to get consensus, by having to get an agreement on what the real problem is, having to get an agreement on what the right solution looks like, by having to create the certainty that somebody can move forward. So there's a whole bunch of other problems that are now our problems in sales that didn't used to be, but because of where we are in time, that's the problems that we have to deal with. And they're mostly being ignored. So how does someone help their prospect to at least recognize those problems and solve those problems? Yeah, you're already getting into my fourth book, which just went to oh. the publisher yesterday. So we're we, well, congrats. We call this, yeah, helping the client discover something about themselves. One of the things that you have to be able to do is help them see clearly their situation. And a lot of times they're so busy, head down, doing the work. It's very hard for them to look up and try to understand their world. So we call that sense making. So somebody has to come in and say, the reason things are going this way is because, and they can provide you a certain certainty that allows you to say, I understand what's going on in my world and why I'm having these problems now. So that's a big part of starting out the process of helping them learn something about themselves. And that's what you and your wife discovered. Like there's, you know what, we're not uh, framed picture people anymore. We're going to look at new things and do something that's different and yeah. If you had a really good salesperson, they would show you lots of different choices and say, which of these feels good to you? Which of these feels like it's not something that would fit with the rest of your home? Like they would ask you a lot of questions to help you dial in. Like, what are you trying to solve for? And what's the right answer look like? And when people have insights, they can help you do that very well. I was scrolling one day and uh, I saw a very provocative post that said, the new pornography is Zillow. Yes. I thought that was pretty provocative, but yeah, like who doesn't like to look at Zillow? Who doesn't like to look at those? And I don't really spend very much time on social media, but when I ever do, it's Instagram. And it's because I followed like 40 architectural firms. And so when I'm scrolling, all I'm looking at is just the kind of things that you're describing. Like I want to see what people do and how they make it look beautiful and what it feels like. And that part to me is fascinating. Yeah. And what are the new trends? What are the new ways that people are able to get that aesthetic pleasure out of where they live? Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about this being a discovery process. And 
again, being in my role now, I have people reaching out to me every single day wanting to get me on the phone for a discovery call or a discovery talk. And I'm anxious to see your book come out, but I have a feeling that the way that you approach discovery is a lot different than the way these people that are just pinging me every day wanting to get me on a discovery call. So what's the new way for discovery? The new way that you would do discovery is to start by teaching the client something. And that's the real starting point. And a lot of us have been doing this for a very, very long time. I started doing it in 2001. And uh, what I found is that a lot of my clients had false assumptions or outdated beliefs, and they were still operating from those. And I struggled to, to find a way to help them change their mind. I mean, that's what I was really trying to do. To get a change, I had to get them to change what they believed and how they were thinking about things. And I wasn't particularly good at it. I was good at the legacy approach to sales. What's keeping you up at night? You tell me your problem. I tell you what the solution is. And uh, we both sign a contract and we move forward and I solve the problem for you. I was very comfortable in that role. I grew up in it. So that worked fine for me. But what I started to figure out was that a lot of the times the client had a problem that one, they didn't understand. And two, that was preventing them from making the changes that they needed to make outside of getting rid of their supplier and getting a new solution. And so when I started to notice that, and uh, this is a a true story, I, I was so exasperated with this client, I couldn't get to do the right thing, that I made a slide deck that was maybe 100 slides long. It was all just data, labor data. It was their pay rates compared to their internal pay rates, their pay rates compared to their competitors, to the people in their neighborhood. I showed them so much insight. I way overshot the mark, Matt. I mean, you don't need 100 slides to do this. You could do it with eight. I could probably do it with four uh, most of the time. But I pummeled them with data. And at the end, the senior leader said, that was a really, really good presentation. And we learned a lot. And he said, can I uh, get a copy of your slide deck? No one had ever asked me for the slide deck that had the picture of our building on it or anything like that. No one ever cared for that slide. Like they didn't care. But in this case, I asked the question, like, why do you need the slide deck? And he said, I'm going to be briefing our senior leadership team this afternoon. And it would be really helpful to have that. And I said, sure, I'll give you a copy. Wow. And then he said, um, would you take your logo off? And I was like, that's like too much. Like, that's too much. He wants me to take the logo off. So now it looks like he did this work, but I'd already committed to him. So I gave it to him. And literally after their meeting, he called me and gave me $2 million to pass on to his employees that were working, you know, through us for him. And uh, he raised their pay rate by about $6,000 per person. Uh, annually. And then I realized I got that deal done largely because I eliminated his false assumptions and his outdated beliefs, his anchors, the things that he was anchored on. And he was a full bird colonel from uh, Vietnam. And so he thought, like, you should be grateful to have a job. Yeah. Well, not really. (laughs) Like, that's not, it doesn't really work. Uh, that way, like the way that you grew up in the 50s, you know, it didn't work that way. Now it's a different time. And that changed their results. And it changed the way that I thought about what I was doing. And literally, 
I never carried the slide deck that had anything to say about my company. And I only carried a slide deck that had insights. And it turned out that I never needed anything else because when I was teaching and I was helping them understand how to make the decisions and how to look at their problems and to explain the root cause of those problems, uh, I'd walk out with deal after deal. And I taught other people how to do that. And that is what we call consultative selling now. And that's what we called it before. I mean, it, it was always consultative selling. Challenger, when CEB did the Challenger sale, that was a sort of a coming out party for this kind of thinking. But a whole bunch of us have been doing it for a long time. And you took the approach of instead of like that same old question, like that everyone gets tired of answering really and doesn't want to have to answer, taking the question, what keeps you up at night and changing that to, hey, here's what should be keeping you up at night. Yeah, that's right. So that's the shift. Now, I already know I have a problem. I already know I have pain. I don't understand how to make this decision. I don't understand what I'm supposed to be doing here to make things better. When you have somebody who's a sense maker come in and they start explaining to you, this is what the labor market looks like. This is why you can't get the people that you want. This is why you're experiencing the turnover or whatever it is that you do in your world. In marketing, you're going to say, this is why your cost of acquisition is so high. This is why you're your landing pages don't convert. And uh, like you, you're going to have a different number of things that you're going to see that they're not aware of until you show it to them. And that's the part where you teach people something about themselves. And when you do that and you're good at it, then people want to buy from you because you're the person who's in what we call the one-up position. Like I know more than you do about this. Now, it's not. I'm not trying to one-up you. It's just one of us has more information than the other. And then if you switched roles, and you were trying to buy what they sell, they would be in the one-up position and they would have way more knowledge and the questions to ask you that would expose something about you to you. And, and that is modern sales now. Yeah. So if we think about those four levels you were talking about earlier, if you're at the level one or two or three, you as the individual, it doesn't make any difference who it is that's selling. You know, if I'm getting a product or a service, if I'm getting a solution, then it doesn't matter who the person is that I get it from. But when you are bringing the sense to me, when you're making that sense for me, you then become my trusted advisor. Yeah, that's the place we're playing for right there. Yeah. In addition to my, you know, branding and customer experience that I focus on, I focus on personal branding as well. And in a sales role or whoever you are, it's the fact that clients aren't just purchasing your product or service, they're purchasing and they're preferring to do business with you as the individual. And I think when you become that trusted advisor, that's what helps you stand out and your brand as that trusted advisor is what's going to create those relationships. Yeah. And you know, your brand is something like, uh, you're not a know-it-all and you can't be a know-nothing, but you're the guy who knows a lot about this, or you're the woman that knows a lot about this. And, and that's the spot that you want is like, when you have this problem, you want to be identified. Your brand is, this is the person who cares the most about this, that has the deepest understanding and that can get you that result the fastest. That, that's what you really are playing for. So you have to demonstrate that. And one of the things that I spend a lot of time trying to help people understand is all you've got is the vehicle that we call the sales conversation. So you have to do all of that just with words in a conversation. 
But if you do that and you do teach and you do help them understand something about themselves and make sense of their world, uh, then you're in a really, really good spot. And I think that's what helps in uh, wanting to keep coming back to that person time and again, so long as they don't get complacent, like you were talking about earlier. Exactly. And that's true for all of us. Now, so beyond sales, I would say that most any high performing professional is selling every day, even if their specific title, their specific role isn't in sales. They're having to sell ideas to their leadership, ideas to other teams. Do these lessons still apply to them? Can they take these lessons and still instill them into their role? I'm 100% confident that's true. And if you start with the idea that there has to be urgency around change. So you start with the why change question. You can go look at mm. John Cotter's book, you know, uh, The Heart of Change. Or you could look at Robert Keegan's book, Immunity to Change, and understand why we have these obstacles to doing that. But you, you are going to start that same process about why do we have this burning platform and what should we be doing about it? And uh, it, that that's true regardless of your role, but especially if you're a leader. Yeah. Again, like that why change, a lot of it is being able to recognize either what's happening now, what's happening tomorrow, or what's going to be happening a couple of years from now, and how can we get ahead of that? That's right. Anthony, uh, this has been really eye-opening, and I've really appreciated the lessons that you've shared, especially some of the newer ones from your upcoming book, which I'm anxious to read. But I got a last question for you. If you were to create a five-song soundtrack for your work, what songs would you include? Just uh, hold on tight on this one, okay? Sure uh, the, the first one, Running With the Devil by Van Halen. Yeah. Uh, it's the starting point for everything. So I like that. You got another thing coming, Judas Priest, uh, 1982. I was 15, and what a great record. For those about to rock, we salute you. Uh, ACDC with Brian Johnson. Yeah. And then we got two more. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Um, right. That that one should be, you know, uh, for everybody. Like, you got to do the work. <laughs> There's no other way. And then my uh, my last one here, number five, Gonna Raise Hell by Cheap Trick. Oh, <laughs> so nice. th that's, that's sort of the view that I look at. Nice. Very cool. Yeah, love it. Love those songs. That's a big part of my musical history there too. And then the ACDCs, it's a long way to the top. Recognizing that a lot of times, especially when it comes to like social media, we tend to share the milestones. We tend to share the highlights. But what we don't recognize from other people that are successful is like all the things that it took to get there and like all the crap along the way that they had to deal with. Oh yeah. It is a long way to the top. There you go. Uh, maybe, maybe we can also include bad reputations, uh, turn it on, turn it up. I don't know if I would put that on any list. Oh, come on. I found a video of that earlier this morning. I think it was y'all playing like for a record label showcase. That was cool to see. Cool to see you with almost like waist long hair. Pretty close, pretty close at the time. Anthony, thank you so much for this. I've learned a lot from you, but where can people go to learn more? Uh, the best place to go is thesalesblog.com, published there every day. And then the other place would be LinkedIn. Excellent. Yeah, very cool. Lots of great info on salesblog.com. Anthony, great seeing you. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. 
I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Anthony Iannarino. So go ahead, check out his book, Eat Their Lunch. It's going to help you learn how you can win, develop, and manage long-lasting relationships. If you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead, hit the subscribe button. It's going to make it so much simpler for you to get future episodes like the next ones featuring Mark Schaefer, Emily Morgan, and Brian Rafferty from Siegel Gale. So go ahead and subscribe and you'll automatically get all those episodes as soon as they're live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.